Welcome to Mary's Cup of Tea, the self-love podcast for women. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski, an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that will inspire you to love yourself. Hello, self-lover. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure you know about my two books on self-love. If you're struggling with body image or self-acceptance, then I highly recommend you check out my first book, The Gift of Self-Love. It's a comprehensive workbook to help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to love who you are. Thousands of people have this book and the five-star reviews are so amazing. They give me so much life. So I hope that this is something that can help you too. You can get it wherever books are sold by searching for The Gift of Self-Love or go to my website, maryscupoftea.com slash book. After releasing The Gift of Self-Love and reading all your positive feedback, I realized that we really needed something to keep us going every single day. So not a deep dive workbook, but maybe like a micro dose of self-love in your daily life, which is why I wrote 100 Days of Self-Love. It's a guided journal with, you guessed it, 100 prompts that cover so many areas of life, including body, identity, purpose, emotions, mindset, relationships, and more. So you can really think of it as a metaphorical multivitamin, something to keep you going, or as I like to say, growing on your self-love journey. You can get this journal wherever books are sold as well by searching for 100 Days of Self-Love or go to maryscupoftea.com slash journal. It's my mission to share all the self-love tea with you, so I hope that both my books and this podcast can do just that. It's common to lose parts of yourself in a relationship, not in a big, bad, negative way necessarily, perhaps more in a semi-conscious way, right? Like all relationships take some form of sacrifice and compromise and bridging the gap between what you want, what I want, and then what benefits us as a couple, as a unit, a family. However, there's often a disparity between how men and women make sacrifices for their relationship. In a long-term partnership, it is normal and necessary to compromise. But how do we ensure that said compromises don't make us lose important parts of ourselves in the process? Today, Dr. Alexandra Solomon is back on the show. Her episode from two years ago was widely popular for good reason. We talked all about relational self-awareness, and today we build on that to talk specifically about how to identify, communicate, and retain those independent parts of ourselves as we embark on a life journey with someone we love. In this episode, Dr. Alexandra shares with us wisdom on how to keep the me within the we. And like all relationships, this episode expands into different topics because we can't talk about certain parts of relationships without addressing all the different branches of that tree. So we also talk about dating, like is it objectively harder today than it was in the past? How do we deal with things as a couple, challenges and tribulations? while also acknowledging that our own emotional experiences could be wildly different. We also discuss whether we need to fully love ourselves before we can love someone else, and I love Dr. Alexandra's answer to this question. And at the end, I ask for her to give us a hot take on should we go through our partner's phones as a way to ensure honesty? I don't know what you think of that, but I wanted to hear it from a couples therapist herself. In case you're unfamiliar with Dr. Alexandra Solomon, 
She is internationally recognized as one of today's most trusted voices in the world of relationships, and her framework of relational self-awareness has resonated with millions. A couples therapist, speaker, author, and professor, Dr. Solomon is passionate about translating cutting-edge research and clinical wisdom into practical tools people can use to bring awareness, curiosity, and authenticity to their relationships. She is on the faculty in the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University, and as a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern as well. Her hit podcast, Reimagining Love, features high-profile guests from the world of therapy, academia, and pop culture. She is the award-winning author of now three books, Taking Sexy Back, Loving Bravely, and her new one, Love Every Day, which is so good. Oh my gosh. It is ultra-specific, super dense, and addresses pretty much any topic or problem that might arise in a long-term relationship and then gives you tools to deal with it. I feel like it's a couples therapy dictionary, and I'm just so grateful that I have it as my husband and I embark on our marriage. So remember, when two individuals form a unit, there are parts of their individual that may be pushed aside. Sometimes that's normal. It's not always a bad thing, but we need to acknowledge each other's individualities within. And I hope this conversation will help you gain insight as to how to do that. So please welcome Dr. Alexander Solomon back to the show. Oh, feels so cool to say welcome back because it means the podcast has been around long enough for me to have guests come back for round two. And I'm super stoked for this one. Hi, Dr. Alexandra. Welcome back to the show. And it's very exciting to say welcome back because I think you're my first ever repeat guest besides maybe like two or three really close people. Oh, I love that. (laughs) I'm happy to be back. I remember our conversation well and I remember how much I enjoyed it. Well, it was over two years ago and I was just engaged and now I'm married. So we have updates. We have new things to talk about. (laughs) I could have kept you on the call for hours last time. So thank you for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations on your wedding. I was thinking about that beautiful quote from Maya Angelou. People won't remember what you said, but they remember how you made them feel. I can't even tell you what you and I talked about, but I remember feeling really good sharing space with you. (laughs) Wait, that is so kind. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Leading up to my wedding and marriage, like I've always been into relationships and studying them and trying to improve myself so that I could show up better in my relationship. But now that I am married, I suppose that the thing that we think about most often as a couple is the challenges and changes that are in store for us long-term, both individually and as a unit. And our first year our first like nine months of marriage kind of beat us up. My husband got in a car accident. We were dealing with a plethora of family stuff and just like a a lot of things were getting thrown at us. Luckily, we were able to stay strong. And I often wondered like how much of that was attributed to like our strong union versus just the excitement of being married and like being at the beginning of our journey together, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like in some rocky middle where the two of us are changing and Mm -hmm. developing. And the video that I posted from our last podcast episode that went somewhat viral on the internet, you said that like love evolves over time and you can't expect year one to look the same as year five and year 10. So I want to dive deep into that and talk about how we can love someone so deeply without losing ourselves and love each other through all those different phases of growth and evolution and challenges and tribulations. Great. That's great. Yeah, let's do it. 
<laughs> Let's dive in. <laughs> I think, yeah. Well, I'm sure you could relate to this, like reading your work and everything. But as somebody who's like feminist minded, like very empowered, independent, my mom always told me like, make your own money, get your degree, like make sure you're established on your own. So my whole life I've done just that and kind of resisted losing myself in a relationship. But I see a lot of women and myself included that like, ultimately that is something that we want. And one thing about relationships is like, you have to compromise some of yourself. But I think there's like this, sometimes a disbalance between how much in a heteronormative sense, like a woman will sacrifice Mm -hmm. certain wants and needs and dreams versus a man. And I think about that line between willingly and happily choosing someone, changing those priorities to choose someone versus like settling and self-sacrificing and pushing your own dreams aside. So I'm wondering if you could just speak into that, if you've seen that in your work with couples and how, how it manifests. Yeah. 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 I guess one thing I want to say right off the top is I'm, I'm sorry about your husband's car accident. I hope that he's healing and I hope that he's okay. I can imagine what an ass kicking, like the first nine months mess us up. Like I can imagine that that's not right. That's not something that you had in your, on your vision board for the first year of marriage by any stretch of the imagination. And I also imagine that the way that the two of you experienced the car accident was shaped in part by where you were. And I think it's a really interesting point you're making that like a crisis or a stressor, an external stressor Mm -hmm. like that, a car accident, it hits different based on where each of you are individually, where the relationship is in its stages. And it sounds like one of the observations you're making is perhaps the two of you were buoyed by kind of still riding high from the transition to marriage. And my hope for you is that if that same car accident happened in year 10 of your marriage, you'd be buoyed by something else. You'd be buoyed Mm -hmm. by like that deep sense of like, okay, we got it. Here we are back in the trenches. We know this trend. We've been here before. We've got this. So what buoys you as a couple may change from year one to year 10 to year, I'm in year 25. What buoys you is different, but to just, I think, be open to that and be curious about, okay, so what are we going to leverage in this moment? You can't leverage a long history, right? Of, of many, many experiences mm-hmm. like this, the way that Todd and I could leverage that, but mm-hmm. you found something to leverage. And so I think that's a really yeah. interesting way of kind of framing like that when something comes at us as a couple that by the way hits differently right your husband was the one in the car accident Mm -hmm. but you were the one whatever you had to do driving to the hospital terrified or being really patient as he recovered like you were the witness to that experience so there was a we thing but there was Mm -hmm. also two different me things and you found a way of kind of leveraging still kind of riding high from the transition to marriage. And that was a helpful, that was helpful. Couples have always got to have something helpful in the face of a challenge. Yeah. yeah. Well, what I'm hearing you say is that our helpful in 2023 is the fact that we made these beautiful vows and commitments. So external stressors, aside from the car accident, say like family stuff, we were reminded of those because they were relatively fresh, but perhaps you and Todd facing something 25 years later and Stan and I facing something in our future, maybe that thing that we lean on that we know is reliable is like, we've been through this before. We could do it again. So there's, there's different things to leverage at different points in a marriage. Right. Right. It's amazing how much time I spend as a couples therapist, because that's, that's what I know is my couple's most powerful tools. Like, okay, so what are we leveraging? What are we using? 
how do we find just even the little way that the wind is at this couple's back instead of at their at their face? And so I know one of my main jobs as a couples therapist is to always be looking for it because especially when a couple is either in a scary moment mm-hmm. or in a difficult chapter, it can be really hard to find that. Okay, like what the hell? <laughs> what what do we have going for us? And so sometimes yeah. you do need your couples therapist to be like, I know, I know, I can see it. You can't see it right now, but I can see it. Yeah, yeah. And our, our couples therapists, like, they help you. You're at a crossroads. You can choose. And maybe one micro decision, like, choose how to react. Maybe one micro moment won't make a huge difference in the grand scheme of things, but they all add up. So, like, for example, yeah. the, the car, like, he took my car. My car's completely totaled. Like, in that moment, I could choose whether or not to mention that at all. Obviously, <laughs> it's the last thing on my mind. Like, uh-huh. I'm just praying that he's okay. He got hit by a drunk driver. Like, so scary. Oh. Definitely made you think about, like, how precious life is and, like, the what ifs. But after getting through all that, like, I could have been like, why'd you take my car? And now it's totaled. And now I have to deal with this. And now interest rates are high and this and that. But, like, I chose, I'm like, what we're dealing with enough. Like, that's not even something I'm going to ever, ever verbalize to him or try to make him feel guilty about in any world. So that's right. That's right. That's such a wonderful thing to bring up because I think that, yes, you have a choice about whether and when you ever bring it up to Stan. But the thing that I hope you can do is just make it real for yourself. Just allow yourself to have a little micro pity party for yourself (laughs) or say it to somebody else. I think what we often do when we have a thought and a feeling attached to that thought, like the thought is that was my car. The feeling is all of the frustration and anxiety about what that means about interest rates and the hassle. (laughs) I mean, going from 1.9 to 6% is (laughs) Not great. Not great. But often what what happens when we when we have a moment like that is we like layer over the thought and feeling, we layer over it a judgment of ourselves. How could I? What kind of a petty person thinks about this when my husband could have? And so I think it's so important when we do that thing. We have the thought, we have the feeling attached to the thought, we wrap the entire thing up with a self-criticism about. A good wife wouldn't even think about that at a time like this. I'm being petty. Da, da. Those judgments are what sink us like a stone. So that's what in that moment of that quote unquote petty thought, just allowing it, just being like, oh, okay, you're here along with worry, along with gratitude. Mm-hmm. You also are here. The kind of worry about the strategic, pragmatic impacts of this thing. All right. You can have a seat at the table. You don't get to sit at the head of the table. You don't get to be the part of me that reports back to my husband, but you're, Mm -hmm. you're welcome here because you're as real as anything else, right? Anything that we experience is real and doesn't need that kind of double dose of judging ourselves for having the thought and for having the feeling. Mm -hmm. But you're right. We do get to, we do get to make a choice then about what we do with it. Yeah, I I am absolutely smitten by like parts of self-work and just like seeing that as like all these parts of you seated at your kitchen table having dinner. Who gets to be the head? Exactly. Who gets to talk? Who gets to take over? I love visualizing it in that way. Mm -hmm. Well, in your work with particularly hetero couples, do you find that the woman is more likely to put her stuff aside for the sake of her partner's dreams or challenges mm-hmm. or whatever, like kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back to that. Cause that was another place that you wanted us to go is talking about kind of ways that we lose ourselves. And I think that yeah. you, when we're talking about a heteronormative couple, those worries are very real because when you have the 
backdrop of patriarchy. And when your body and your partner's body line up so perfectly with roles that have been in place for thousands of years, it's so easy just to step into that role. You and I can make a list. Anybody listening to this show could make a list of what it means to be a good wife, all the things that a good wife does. It would be the easiest list to come up with because we just have been socialized eight ways to Sunday to know what that means. And and by the way, we could do the same thing for a good husband. But the way that that list looks, because the nature of patriarchy is exactly what you're saying, is that the, the default setting is to put her in a space of sacrifice, giving, accommodating, kind of staying really pliable, filling Mm -hmm. in here, filling in here, moving, maneuvering, reshuffling her list of priorities in the face of whatever's happening. It's what's required when your role is homemaker, right? And if we've divided it up, it's sort of as provider and homemaker. The Mm -hmm. heart of being a homemaker is pivotability. Whatever you Mm -hmm. thought you were going to do, you're pivoting, you're pivoting, you're accommodating, you're making more space for this person. So that's that's the nature of it. And so I think that I really want my heterosexual couples to be able to look at that and know that any choice that the two of them are making, whether it's a big decision like where we live, a big decision like how are we going to care for this baby, or a little decision about do I give the baby a bath while you clean up the kitchen? Do I go to this email while you feed the baby? Like those micro decisions, they're all happening against that like backdrop where we're either replicating or challenging what we've been taught we should do. And Mm -hmm. I know that I very often am wanting to invite men to just look at that. Like I'll bring that, I'll bring that gender conversation into a couples therapy session. It's not ever, ever, ever about blaming men, but it's about inviting men to say, listen, there's a whole thing. You didn't make it happen, but there's a whole thing that exists inside of your wife or your girlfriend that is about, she's a good wife to the degree that she accommodates but when she accommodates, she feels like she's losing herself. So there's a whole internal battle that is just different for you as a husband, as a man. It's different. Mm -hmm. I think when a man accommodates, it's pretty easy to feel a sense of like pride. And I don't think that there's the same, I'm losing myself kind of concern when a man accommodates. And I think the world also, the world gives him lots of pats on the back. If he moves for her career, or if he takes care of the baby while she does something. They're, the yeah. world is sort of like they're cheering mm-hmm. for him. So and I it, think that's where some of the tensions come. Yeah, hundred percent. And it's it's noticeable. I watched this interesting video where they were talking about how generally like even men's work around the house is like completable as opposed to ongoing. So for example, mowing the lawn, like blowing the leaves in the backyard, fixing a car, like it's like one done maybe a couple times a month at max, right? Whereas a work like that's generally attributed to women's work doing dishes, that is ongoing three, four, five times a day. You're feeding your family, you're doing dishes and they never end. And so that expectation of like, like there's no do done complete and get credit for it Mm -hmm. (laughs) as Mm -hmm. there is with some of the stuff that's stereotypically attributed to men's work. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think that is absolutely true about men's work versus women's work, which is why I am forever grateful for Eve Rodsky and her fair play system. Like when I got her book and got her deck, I was like tearful, like, oh my God, look at what you did. This has been a problem for me. It's been something I've been teaching about and talking about for years and years and years. And so I just love what she did. So anybody who's listening, who's partnered, whether you're queer or straight, 
it's just a beautiful resource to say, like, let's look in a really expansive way about all of what goes into labor in yeah. this home and in this family. And it's just so, it's so illuminating and so important. Now, I will say that I think that one of the places that women can get tripped up is because there's this internal tug of war of mm-hmm. accommodate versus not accommodate. If I accommodate, I'm a good wife, but I'm losing myself. If I don't accommodate, I feel rigid and I'm worried about like kind of my level of commitment or what's wrong with me. So there's sort of like this like never ending tension. I will say that when she's wrapped up in that inner processing, I think it's really easy for her to lose sight of her male partner's journey to commitment because there are and have been so many shifts inside of him, accommodations, sacrifices, griefs, expansions that he's been going through as well Mm -hmm. that I think becomes really easy for her to lose sight of and not be able to notice all of the ways that he's showing up, that he's demonstrating commitment, that he is letting go of his experience of himself as a single person and really Mm -hmm. taking on a sense of being a we. So I think that she like understandably becomes fear loaded and a little bit like kind of myopic, like in her own world about it. And so I think it's really helpful to like, kind of like lift up your head and get curious about what has changed for you as our commitment has deepened, like what feels different inside of you just to ask those questions and be curious about it because he may not be talking about it openly and she Mm -hmm. may be so concerned about her own loss of self that she's not asking about what's going on for him. Yeah. Part of like the beauty and sometimes the double-edged sword of women and the way we've been socialized and some of our gifts and strengths lie in like the ability to introspect and then communicate that. So sometimes it feels like I do this to my husband. I'm like, let me just pull it out (laughs) of you. Like sometimes it feels like I have to pull it out. Like I'm the one thinking about it. I'm the one trying to be cognizant of it. I'm the one having conversation with you, perhaps with my therapist. Honestly, the best thing that I did for myself as of late is I stopped doing individual therapy and we just do maintenance couples therapy like twice a month because it just lets us both be in the conversation without me feeling like I'm doing that emotional labor of like, let me talk about you in therapy and then have a follow-up therapy session with what I wish you talked about in your therapy sessions vicariously oh. through what I learned. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's felt very empowering because like we're just both in in the conversation. So asking those types of questions, like how has it changed for you? Like what parts of yourself have you had to grieve Yeah, and give up maybe and change? Yeah. And I think part of how we socialize boys and men is that we, I think that men often feel like I can't and I shouldn't talk Mm -hmm. to her about my own process because I'm going to be burdening her with it. I should just deal with this on my own. And by the way, it feels hella vulnerable to have her watching me as I try to like put this into words because something's been happening inside of me, but I haven't really been processing it with my guy friends or I'm not in therapy or whatever. And so when she's looking at me and asking me these questions or like, I certainly wouldn't initiate a conversation with her about it because I don't want to burden her. I'm not quite sure what it all means. Anyways, the idea that this is something shareable doesn't actually even occur to me. So it's oftentimes not until she asks the question that he's like, Oh, I suppose I could talk about this, but it sort of feels strange. I think oftentimes feels strange to him. Like, 
But isn't yeah. this the kind of thing that I'm just figuring out on my own? Where then for her, it's actually immensely helpful for her to hear it because it reminds her she's not the only one sacrificing. She's not the only one expanding. She's not the only one grieving. I think it really is so helpful to, to feel like, okay, good. There's stuff going on. So I'm, I'm not the only one doing all of the changing and growing and working in this relationship. That's a, a great example scenario of how like ultimately the patriarchy and these gender roles and boxes and stereotypes, they hurt all of us. Like they make us feel guilty for like overthinking on it. And meanwhile, he's feeling, I don't know, repressed or suppressed or not able to like communicate effectively because he wasn't shown that that's like an important part of a relationship. So it's it, it's a journey. I think that's why I love couples work so much is because I really do feel like in some small way, like it's fighting the patriarchy. It's redefining. Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yes, I know. Yeah. My favorite moment is when either partner, but with a straight couple, especially when she says, huh, I hadn't heard that before. And you like, you watch her soften. I hadn't heard mm-hmm. that before. I didn't know that. Like, that's just such a beautiful moment. Like, I didn't know you felt that way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah for sure. I didn't know you felt that way. I didn't know that that was what was going on for you. I think some point the goal is to not need to have a couples therapist there to facilitate those conversations, mm-hmm. but our own narratives are so powerful that it is so easy to get lost in them. And it is then important to have somebody kind of shake us awake and be like, okay, maybe hear about it from his, from the yeah. other perspective. I am quite the skeptic when it comes to health claims that I see on the internet. There's just so much out there promising to help you, heal you, or make you better in some way, but most of it is unstudied pseudoscience. But skeptics still need vitamins, which is why Ritual's clinically backed Central for Women 18 Plus is my go-to multivitamin. With shorter days and me working from home, vitamin D is a must, and most women aren't getting enough of it. That's why I take two Ritual multivitamins every morning before breakfast to cover my basis. They're gentle on an empty stomach while containing vitamin D3, vitamin E, folate, vitamin B12, iron, magnesium, boron, omega-3, and vitamin K2. The Essential for Women 18 Plus is also USP verified, which stands for United States Pharmacopeia. It confirms that the product's ingredients are actually the ingredients that are listed on the bottle, so you can trust what you're putting in your body. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 40% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash Mary's Tea. This offer is only available through January 31st. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash Mary's Tea for 40% off. Dr. Alexandra, your book, Love Every Day, the new one, is so damn dense in the best way possible. There is so much that I want to go into (laughs) here. It's like, what, 400 pages? It covers so much ground. It's literally a couples therapy crash course, the way I see it. And the page that's particularly relevant to our conversation today is 53. On page 53, It's in like big, bold letters as the header. You write that couples must continually wrestle with the following question. In what ways does this intimate partnership nourish our individual ambitions, passions, and dreams? 
And there's a little box here that I do want to read out loud about queer couples. Queer couples must explore how gender expression, masculine presentation, feminine presentation could create tilts toward or away from each partner's ambition. Mm -hmm. So I think Mm -hmm. despite speaking in heteronormative terms, I think this does apply universally. I need to know what was the motivator for you writing about this topic that I think a lot of relational therapy misses, which is what you said about that little triangle of there's like two individual me's and then a we. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Because I think it's such a theme woven throughout the entries of Love Every Day. I mean, it's the heart of relational. All of my work is under the umbrella of relational self-awareness, sort of understanding ourselves in the context of our relationships. And so it's, it is holding onto the me inside of the we. And I think that is one of the things that can just feel so confounding. It's like, do I get to still pursue my dreams and how? And what happens when my dreams bump up against your dreams? How do we get creative about that? The possibilities are infinite always about how couples sequence dreams or prioritize dreams or viewing your relationship in chapters. But a couple can't get to those possibilities until and unless they are able to kind of sit with the feelings that come up when I say to my partner, this is really important to me. Like I have Mm -hmm. to feel, I have to feel a kind of entitlement to say that this is really important to me, but I have to also have a kind of humility about that because this is important to me, but also our relationship is important to me. So I don't quite know, right? I love when we can go to each other and say, I don't quite know. I'm caught. I'm struggling. One part of me is feeling so ambitious. And another part of me is worried that my ambition will push you away or will put us at risk of growing distant from each other. I think those are the tensions and they aren't solvable, but especially when we get afraid, we get super binary and we go, it's either I get to follow my passions or I don't. It's either yeah. I get what I want or they get what they want. Fear makes us binary. And, and then we lose access to that whole plane of possibility. And like, what's more powerful than two people who love each other, shoulder to shoulder, looking at this whole plane of possibilities and being like, okay, what are we going to build here? Right? Mm-hmm. What are we, we can't build it all at once. And sometimes what we want to build is going to be in tension with each other, but anything's possible. I love that. Fear makes us binary for me. It's that narrative of like, I can either be a mom or like a good mom or run my business. Yes. That's the biggie. Yeah. Yeah. It helps so much to see people who are doing both, but then it also adds to the pressure of like, I have to do it all. Eve Rodsky talks about this. We did an, an episode with her and it was amazing. But also like how you can be anything translates into you must be everything <laughs> for right. so many of us. Right. Well, and especially in this, I think that those of us who are drawn to things that are entrepreneurial, especially like there's just, I mean, I don't know how it is for you, but there's never a sense that I'm done. You know, like that mm-hmm. my day is done, that my job is done. There's always more that can be done or created or judged or... So I think that's especially true. But I think I'm struck by the fact that when I went to college and grad school many, many, many years ago, I had that tension, especially as a, like a young feminist of like, how am I going to be the mom I want to be, the wife I want to be, and the professional I want to be? And I've got college students today in 2024 who still women. I don't, I've yeah. yet to hear, I've yet to hear a male student verbalize this tension, but the, for the women, it's as real as it was for me all those years ago. You alluded that 
it takes a certain level of, you said entitlement. I would also couple it with maybe empowerment and that relational self-awareness to be like, I'm even having this inkling that like I need to do something else, pursue something different, ask you to support me in my dreams that might be silly at first, but actually mean something to me that I'm struggling to communicate. For example, you alluded that to get to that point, like we have to realize that within ourselves, like there's a little part of me that's like missing something. At the beginning, you gave me so much grace with saying like, there might be a little part of you that's like annoyed that your interest rate is is higher now on your new car because your husband decided to take your car when you were out of town, right? In the same way, like, for example, there's this this little part of me that yesterday I was small talking at an event and they asked like, why I live in Arizona, this and that. And I'm like, yeah, well, I studied in Canada, came back for a short time, told myself it was just temporary, met this guy, became my husband. Now I'm here, right? It's a great story. And I do love Arizona and I'm really glad I'm here and I love my home. Yeah, I don't think I need to like overexpress my my gratitude to you because you understand there's a little part of me that's like, if we haven't had met, I might be experiencing a totally different life in a totally different place, expressing certain parts of myself that just like had to be put aside temporarily because I... I love the life I'm living now. So there's this element of like grieving these like lost parts of yourself and feeling empowered in your choice without having the connectors be resentment. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's right. It's why I'm thinking about like what I want to say to individuals or couples when they're at that crossroads, like when they're deciding A versus B. I think the conversation that's so important is that both people come away from the conversation or really the conversations feeling like for you guys, for Stan to really feel like he's not strong arming Mary and for Mary to really feel like she's not a victim. There's like a mutual responsibility and that Stan can open up space inside of his heart to say like, I am enough that I'm deserving of a partner Mm -hmm. who picks up her life and builds it here. Because if he can't feel his own enoughness around that, Mm. then any whisper of your unhappiness triggers shame in him. Oh my gosh, yes. And then you're stuck reassuring and reassuring and reassuring. No, it's fine. No, it's fine. No, it's fine. And then you don't get to have space for the little part of you that's like, I mean, a little bit I miss Canada. Yeah, Yeah. or a little bit I miss some some part of the world that I haven't lived in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that for you, when you and Stan made that decision, you had to make sure that you didn't like keep powder dry, like be like, sure, I'll do this. But a little part Mm -hmm. of me is like, I can't, now I've got a little bit of money in the bank here and I can use this down the road when I don't get something else that I want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we live here because of you. Like that's the Mm -hmm. kind of mutual accountability that a couple needs to have at that decision point because the decision needs to feel as mutual, as clear-eyed, with making space for all of the grief and all of the gratitude so that it doesn't come up later in the form of resentment, in the form of all of that. Well, you just perfectly expressed why I'm able to small talk like that at an event with my husband standing right there and him being like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And taking it with the lightness and and humor and like love (laughs) that is there as opposed to the resentment. That is exactly why, because he feels so like whole within himself. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. And able, able to touch into 
the part that he's playing and creating a life that is really good for mm-hmm. you and with you, that he can mm-hmm. feel his own worthiness, right? You don't have to constantly affirm for him that, no, it's okay. No, it's okay. Cause he's like, yeah, yeah, we're living here because I'm, I'm worth her living here. And this is a back and forth. And in a relationship, yeah. there are choices that technically, if you put it under a microscope, it's better, quote unquote, better for me than for her. And on the whole, on the whole in our relationship, there are lots of things that go in her direction as well, that benefit mm-hmm. her, that support her, that nourish her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On that note, do you think that you need to fully love yourself before you can love someone else? I know this is like a little, a Pinterest quote that catches on or turns people off. I'm wondering what your stance on that is. I always thought that was true. I had sort of been teaching that that idea for a long time about the ways in which like we love ourselves first and then we can love somebody else until Lizzo blew it up for me. <laughs> she did years ago, Lizzo did the little tiny desk concerts. Yeah. That oh, NPR I love those. NPR, mm-hmm. she was doing a tiny desk concert for NPR. And she, she said, that whole idea that you can't love somebody until you love yourself is bullshit. You love me. You love me and all of my imperfections. And because you love me, you can love yourself. The idea was like, look at the ways in which you love others. Your capacity to love others affirms that you have a deep capacity for love. And all it needs is the arrow kind of bent back towards yourself. Like you can Mm -hmm. leverage the love you so easily give to others and sort of bend it back towards yourself. So it's like, I think it's cyclical. And I think the arrow goes in both directions. And it was just a very, I never ever have forgotten that invitation to add some nuance because I think it puts the idea of, oh my God, I can't love somebody else while I love myself. Okay, well, I guess I need 10 years of therapy before I can date. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) And whereas instead, it's simply like just a readjustment, redirection of of that loving energy that you already have. Mm -hmm. One of the lines that is so powerful for me from from your work is that love has the power to wound us, but it can also heal us. And I, I really like that because I've felt healed. Even the relationships that ended up in, breakups and heartache and heartbreak still healed certain parts of me (laughs) in some way. For example, like my ex and I, where we ended really badly, well, he was the number one supporter of my recovery from an eating disorder. Like I would not have gotten through that if I didn't have him by my side in that capacity. There were other things, but also like I didn't love myself, but he did even when I gained weight and when I was going through all this stuff. So that really resonates with me. Right. Yeah. And so what a, what a disservice it would be to yourself, to him, to that time that you spent together to say that because the relationship ended, it was a bad relationship. That would be yeah. a disservice. And it would be actually a revisionist history, right? Mm-hmm. Because there were beautiful things that happened even within a relationship that was not sustainable. I would never want to pressure somebody to say, you have to find the gold in the bad thing. Because I think that can sometimes, that's a way that we are at risk of like gaslighting ourselves or not honoring the full depths of our pain. Mm -hmm. But I do want us to stay open to the possibilities that really beautiful things happen inside of even very painful or unsustainable situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think seeing it in that way is, is healing in and of itself. Speaking of revisionist history, okay, you mentioned dating. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, do you think like 
just as a whole, is dating objectively harder these days? Or are we facing some kind of like rosy retrospection where we see like our parents <laughs> or grandparents that have been married a while were like, oh, so much easier back then because they just met and stayed together. Clearly, I see some like biases and like uncontrolled experimentation that's all anecdotal there. <laughs> so so I think it's kind of like rosy retrospection. I know there's like, like human brains tend to romanticize the past. There's a whole movie, like a rom-com right. about it, Midnight in Paris. And I think that illustrates it so perfectly. So curious in your work, like is dating objectively harder in 2024 than it was in say, even 2014, 10 years ago? Yeah. I have no problem saying that. And it feels very true to me. I think if we were to give a scientific explanation we'd have to come up with some some more sophisticated kind of questions about like, how do we operationalize what hard means? Are we looking at like mm-hmm. success rates? Are we looking at ratio of dates to committed relationships? We have to kind of figure out some metrics for how we define hard. But I think we're making what, what I call a role to soul transition. So typically intimate partnerships were heavily role bound, like we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. One man, one woman, what he's got to do, what she's got to do. So all you had to do as a man was find a woman with like childbearing hips who knew how to cook. And as a woman, all you had to do was find a man who didn't drink, didn't hit you and could like bring home money or a deer, whatever, depending on how back, how far back in history <laughs> we're going to go. So this and- just, just to illustrate that you're not like being facetious, but this is real. Like my grandma has said, I swear those exact same words in Russian to my mother. Yeah. That was what she needed to find. Yeah. Sure at least he doesn't you. hit you, doesn't drink. Yep. Yeah, the bar for a successful marriage was much lower than it Mm -hmm. is, lower and qualitatively different than today. And so today, people certainly, Mary's Cup of Tea listeners, are wanting soul-to-soul relationships, right? We want to feel seen and heard and validated. We want our dreams to be supported. We want to be able to kind of become the best versions of ourselves. So there's that. What we want in a relationship is qualitatively different than what people have wanted throughout history. And the possibilities for like the architecture of a relationship are so much more expansive. Are we poly? Are we monogamous? Like how do we sequence? There also used to be a super clear sequencing of stages of commitment. He asks you out. He says we are now exclusive. He proposes. Like there used to be like super clear linear steps towards commitment and they were led across the board by the man. And so there's just like such an expansion of possibilities around gender, around commitment. We partner later. Dating is harder because you got to do it for longer. Generally speaking, people are doing it for more years. If you, when you got married at 23, it wasn't that hard to date because you didn't have to do it for that long. You had to do it only so long as you got to the point where you could get into a committed relationship. But realistically, most people are going to have more than one love story. So dating is harder because you have to also learn how to break up well, how to heal in the in-between time, how to open up your heart again. And we haven't even gotten to dating apps, right? Then you add technology in and that's a whole other thing where tech companies are making gazillions of dollars off of gamifying dating apps, right? It's not just in a want ad, the newspaper would profit, right? The newspaper would profit because you'd pay to post your seeking so-and-so, da-da-da. But that's different than how dating apps profit. They profit off of your frustration and Mm -hmm. your itchiness and unlocking more premium features. It's a whole, it's a game, right? It is not a tool, it's a game. And so there's a whole skill set that daters have to develop about how to 
how to use that tool mindfully, how to bring relational self-awareness to this dating app. So yes, it's harder. Case closed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and what do you I think, think? What do you think? Well, I, I agree. I th- I think the easy thing to do is to it's to blame it on technology and social media. And I do want to get there because it is obviously yes. rewiring our brains in some way. I guess where I expected you to go is talking about how because we have more rights, yay, we love equal rights. <laughs> and because we have the length of time that we're dating, totally see that. And we feel the need to be more established before we get married, as opposed to before, even 20, 30 years ago, marriage was a sign of establishment. Like being married means like you're officially an adult. Whereas now it's like kids can get married or adults can get married and divorce is very normal for good reasons. And then anyway, we just have more options. Like you said, more possibilities and opportunities. With that being said, I think this circles back to where we started this pressure to be perfectly set up in your own life, perfectly going to like loving yourself fully, 10 years of therapy. I need to do all these things for myself. I need to see the world. I need to get my job, build my career, and I'm not going to commit legally. And I completely understand it. Like when somebody's telling me this, totally valid. I'm very lucky to be in the situation that I am to feel that marriage was right for me in this time. So again, there's like always like, there's always both there. And I think people see marriage and commitment in some ways as like losing themselves, as like giving up on their aspirations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're reluctant. Yes. I think you're making a number of really good points. And I don't know, I don't know that there's a right way in a wrong way. I think that there is a model of marriage where people come together and build together. And I think there's a model of marriage where people build on their own and then they come together and merge their empires. I remember listening to Logan Yuri, who wrote a book called How Not to Die Alone. And she's a relationship scientist for one of the mm-hmm. big dating apps. And she talked about the idea of a marriage being a startup versus a merger. I'm very often, if you get married in your earlier 20s or in your 20s, your marriage is a bit more of a startup, like like you're saying, and you're building together. That's a beautiful way to do it. To build together is really beautiful. And to merge is really beautiful as well, to kind of create a merger of two well-established systems. There's just challenges in both. There are challenges and opportunities in both of those models. When you do the startup model, the challenge is you're taking a risk. What if we grow in different directions? Yeah. The merger model, the challenge is it's really freaking hard to merge. Are we living in my house or your house? Are we using your dish towels or my dish towels? Like there's challenges in both directions. So I think that where we go wrong in all this relationship talk is we imagine that there's a right way and a wrong way. And that's where we get ourselves tripped up and scared. And once mm-hmm. we're scared that we're doing it the wrong way, then everything gets cast in a in a light and we start to spiral into how we're doomed. And then I think couples really can start to actually doom themselves versus trusting that there are lots of paths, lots of ways of doing this, as long as they're founded, as long as the couple can keep turning to each other and saying, how am I doing? Mm -hmm. I'm not feeling so seen. Can we focus on this? Can we make a little more space for this? Yeah. Let me tell you why your work and your book is so damn powerful. Many, many reasons. But on, on this note, with love every day, it is so ultra specific and you give space for so many different experiences and you just highlighted that there's no right or wrong way to do it. 
I think with that, there's a difference between like an individual experience and what's individually right for you. And then like collective, like what's happening in trends in society, what what does the mm-hmm. research show, whatever. And those are two totally separate things. So you might fit into that statistic, the average, the normal, whatever we deem it to be at the time, or it might be completely different. And when I tell you that these 400 pages are so dense and so specific (laughs) because they address anything that you could possibly face as individuals and as a couple. And I love that. You say there's no right or wrong way, but this might be a trick question in that sense. Cause like, I'm curious to know, like as a couples therapist, is there a right or wrong in this specific situation? I was at dinner a couple of nights ago with a friend And she looked at me and said, the key to a good relationship is to always go through their phone. Go through your man's phone, go through your partner's phone. Well, you're having such an endearing reaction to this. I was like, oh my God, you psychopath. (laughs) I have been with my partner for five years now. We're coming up on five years. I have never once gone through his phone, ever, ever. I've never even looked at it. I've thought about it at times, but I've never actually acted on those thoughts because I feel like it's such an invasion of privacy. Talk to us about the difference between privacy and secrecy (laughs) and what you think about going through your partner's phone. Right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, what she's saying is the heart of a good relationship is trust. (laughs) But she's got an interesting route to get there, right? She has a concrete route to get there. She's saying the way that you feel trust is by looking at their phone. I would say to her that I want her to have about eight different avenues for how she feels trust. She's right in that trust is bedrock. Trust is, as you will see in one of the 365 entries Mm -hmm. of the book, trust is an energetic shortcut. There's research that shows that like when we don't trust somebody, like the brain physiology is so much different. Like the amount of glucose and oxygen it takes to be in conversation with somebody you don't trust Mm -hmm. is much higher than when you're in conversation with someone you trust. Because when you don't trust somebody, you're running all of their words and all of their facial expressions and all of their body postures through all these filters inside of you. Is that really what they mean? Is that really what they mean? There's so much thought and so much like bodily sensation that has to accompany a conversation when you're with somebody you don't trust. When you're with somebody you trust, you can just take their words and their body language. It's all kind of synced up. It all sets inside of you. And there's kind of a flow there. And so she's saying, you got to have a route to feel that settled feeling inside of you. And Mm. she's saying the best route is going through their phone. Well, you're way more compassionate than I am. (laughs) I don't, I don't, I would not advise it. I would not. Now, when a couple comes to me in the breach of a, after an affair, that is very commonly what we do is we, we talk about passwords and we talk about transparency. And that is a vehicle for helping a betrayed partner feel like they've got a freaking solid place to put their foot, mm-hmm. but it cannot be the only way. Vigilance cannot be the only route to trust. There's got to be how my body feels next to your body. There's got to be a sense that you see me and you understand me. Like there's all kinds of other avenues to trust besides that. So I have compassion for her desire, Mm -hmm. but I take issue with her methodology. And this is the same person who was really shocked when I told her that I have my husband blocked on my social media. Mm. Uh I I have my husband blocked on my social media because I get, like I share a lot of vulnerable things on there. And I phrased it like this. I'm like, I don't go through your emails, every email as they come. 
And to me, my social media is my work and it feels like my my like email exchange. At the end of the day, I show him my Instagram stories. I show him my posts. He's the one filming my content. He's always like, I'm always running things by him. He's seen everything, but I want to choose when and where and how I, I show him certain things as it. opposed to him seeing what I'm doing in the house at random times of the day. Because half the time I'm just like taking pictures of our dog and <laughs> dressing him yep. up and Anyways, I love it. I think that's great. Like that's a kind of privacy that you need. It's not a secret. A secret is something that is charged where if he knew, like Mm. a secret, a secret robs him of agency to make choices. Private is just like, you don't need to be in here. There's nothing going on in here that would change the decisions that you make about yourself, about me, about us. My husband has location. We've got our kids on Life360. I've got mm-hmm. my mom on Life360. I'm on it. I'm visible. Kids are visible. Todd is not visible. When you it just says like location hidden since 2020. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's like, no one needs to know where I am. And that is private. And so I could spin my wheels about what is he hiding, but that is a place where he just does not feel like I need to know where he is every minute and that he has earned that trust with me over many, many, many years. And it's a little bit like, there's a way in which when there's trust, it's like a little playful, like, Ooh, I don't, I don't know where he's been. Like, where am I? It's just a little bit. It's just, I think it's a sort of endearing quality about him of where he decides that he needs to have some privacy, but that's something that he has, that he's earned, that we've earned over time and experience. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully Todd is like Stan where half the time they're just at the store getting us gifts. (laughs) 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 True, true story. When I'm like, where were you? What did you do today? And he's being sus. Almost always, it's like it was shopping for like a birthday gift or something. <laughs> That's very darling. I love or that. Organizing. <laughs> well, there's one more thing that I want to highlight to our listeners from your book, Love Every Day, which I really hope everybody gets because it's 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 like a dictionary for relationships, for couples therapy. That's how I see it. You wrote about multitudes and how people contain multitudes based on the Walt Whitman quote that I love. And the quote is, do I contradict myself very well than I contradict myself? I am large. I contain multitudes. And so you write about how you say we are all at risk of over-identifying with one facet of who we are to the point that it eclipses all other facets. This makes us vulnerable to identity questions when our context changes. If I am not X, then who am I? And sometimes you say that the gift of close relationships is that your partner can say things like, I've loved you long before you were X and I'll love you long after, or that was a thing you did, not a thing you are. And you contain multitudes in a sense that like, there's so much to you. And part of the beauty of being in a long-term partnership is that there's somebody to witness that and to remind you of that when you're struggling. And I really just wanted to close with that because I think it answers the question of how do you love someone else without losing yourself? It's like hopefully if you're in a healthy place in your union, that person reminds you of who you are without them too. That's right. Oh, this is why I love spending time with you. Yes. I've got chill bumps. Absolutely. That's the whole, that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. I wish couples therapists could have assistance because I, (laughs) I I would love to be like your tech. Like there'd be a couples therapy tech. (laughs) That's right. I'm like, Mary, I'm going to bring you in here. What am I missing? Yeah. What, are we, what are we doing here? Do you mind taking some emotional blood pressure here? That's right. How are we doing? Well, thank you so much, Dr. Alexandra, for your book, Love Every Day, and for all the work you do on social media, your podcast, and 
beyond. Thank you, Mary. Thank you for having me again. One last thing before we farewell, my self-lovers. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple or rate the show on Spotify. You can do this by searching for the show, Mary's Cup of Tea. Scroll all the way down on Apple Podcasts and you'll see stars where you can click one of the stars and leave a few kind words. It just means so much to me because I'm so behind the scenes when I'm podcasting, so I don't really get to see the impact of the show unless you leave a review. And on Spotify, there's just a button that says rate the show and it'll let you put however many stars you want. Your feedback helps the podcast grow. And as someone whose love language is words of affirmation, your kind words mean the world to me. Thank you so much for supporting the show and helping me spread the gift of self-love. I love you all so much and I will talk to you in next week's episode.